0: Welcome back to the Devin Kershaw show. I'm Nat Hers with Faster Skier. It's the middle of the summer. I've been hiking and floating around the Arctic and catching a bunch of salmon. Devin has been studying up on medical things, so we have not had a lot of podcasts lately as I'm sure you all know because you're listening to this. This episode with new Canadian national team coach Robin McKeever is the first of two that have suffered some production delays. We'll have a second one with U.S. ski team coach Matt Whitcomb shortly, and we hope to be posting episodes on a slightly more regular basis and obviously plan to be back with you as the season ramps up heading into the fall and winter. Stay with us, we'll be back in a minute. This episode of the Devin Kershaw Show is brought to you by New Moon Ski and Bike, located in beautiful Hayward, Wisconsin's picturesque Northwoods region, which borders Michigan's Upper Peninsula and is home to the country's largest cross-country ski race, the American Berkebiner. The Berkey has over 100 kilometers of cross-country ski trails that stretch from Cable, Wisconsin to Hayward. Some have named the trail as the number one cross-country ski destination in the entire U.S., The trails are groomed and maintained for both skate and classic skiing or ditch the skis altogether and go fat biking instead hayward boasts more than 50 miles of groomed fat bike trails to choose from new moon has ski and fat bike rentals available with experts ready for waxing and repair services new moon is the area's premier shop for skis snowshoes and fat bikes clothing accessories expert fitting and outstanding customer service when in hayward look for them on highway 63 in the big log chalet or check them out online at newmoonski.com.
1: I'm thrilled first of all I like to to sit down with Robin. Robin was obviously like a huge inspiration of mine when I was a young athlete, a junior racer. Since Robin and Donald, Donald, well the late Donald Farley and Robin McKeever were the were the guys I looked up to although they were it was yeah when I was like 13 14 they were the ones that were racing at the Olympics and the World Championships and, and on the World Cup representing Canada and after his illustrious national team career as an able-bodied racer, he went on to guide his brother, Robin. Robin is his brother, Brian. Oh my God. Sorry, Brian, who is the winningest Paralympian of all time in Canada. Um, Which, and not only that he went from a guiding role to leading the whole Paranordic team for Canada and stabilizing that team, not just stabilizing that team, but the, the, the Canadian Paranordic team was the, the best winter para team in the in Canada for over a decade. And that was steered by by Robin. And then he made the exciting move to go over into able-bodied uh, racing. And he's now the head coach of the National Cross-Country Ski Team. Uh, the team that he was a member of for 15 years and I was a member of for over 15 years. And now he's, he's leading the charge. And um, over the years, I've been really lucky enough to get to know his son, Xavier, even though I've known Xavier since Xavier was like, I don't know, he traveled with us back in 2006. Yeah. Like, I mean, I'll never forget, like nobody loved breadsticks more than Xavier McKeever uh, on, the, on the table of uh, Italian restaurants in, in the Alps love to just op- like take breadsticks and just whip them all over the table. thought it was the funniest thing. So, but uh, from that, and then just to see Xavier, one of the young, young young guns of Canadian skiing and uh, someone to watch along with a lot of different great athletes so really happy to have Robin here and taking the time to to chat with us a little bit and thought it would be fun to get his perspective and and I I don't know it's I know we don't want to keep you too long Robin but I wanted to try and do like a little bit of a retrospective and and um you know I think you and I share the reason being is like how how I envision it is like of course, the Canadian cross-country ski team has had its, its challenges um, over the years. You know, budget's always a challenge, organizational challenges, this sort of, this, that, and the other. But we've also had some amazing highlights. You know, we've had World Cup wins, we've won World Championship medals, we've won Olympic medals. And now you're taking over a team on the able-bodied side that is incredibly strong and really, really exciting. Um, you know, we've got great young athletes, both women and men that in the next five years are going to give Canadians a lot to cheer about. But before we get into that, I do want to, I guess what I'd really like to start with and the first question, like right out of the gun (laughs) is making that transition. I know we, we had talked about this like off the record since I've known Robin forever, but, but I think it's just an interesting story. Transitioning from your active career, like your world cup career, to then guiding Brian at at essentially like the beginning of, of his para journey and how it was like from one career to the next quickly and thrust into the limelight. Like right away, Brian was at such a high, high level. And what was that transition like? Like, did you have any kind of, I don't want to say like, I don't want to say like, um, qualms or grief or like, like, or, or but how did it feel to change from your career, your active career? I mean, it's not easy to transition because there, there is never one perfect right time to stop your world cup career kind of thing. And, but then you transitioned so smoothly and you guys had success like right out of the gun and then just charged through that. So I wanted to hear your perspective on, on that transition. If you could take us through that a little bit.
2: Well, you know, I think, Part of it is, I think, like you said, uh, alluded to, there's been some issues within all politics aside within sport. And so I was at a position at that time in 2002 or or 2001 when I first started guiding Brian. But in 2002 was officially the full flip into that. I would look at it from two ways. One, I was... um, frustrated with where my career was at in the Olympic stream of things. And uh Brian challenged me to be a big brother. I, you know, I am six years older than him. So um that blood is thicker than water type of stuff really holds true. And when his vision is going down, that we learned about it right after the 98 Olympics that I participated at. And he it was a uh, I think emotional piece for me of just knowing that your brother is never going to necessarily be able to follow in your shoes or at least that was at the time the thought he would be following in my footsteps in skiing but uh supporting him in that way but he also challenged me to be a better athlete at that time because as I was getting older I had to find new ways to train harder and it gave me new motivation to train just to keep up because I didn't want to get beat by my little brother Rick and guy you know like you don't want to get beat by your younger brother so it was also challenging and uh, staying in front of him and helping him win um, those races became extremely important to me And it was teamwork and uh, it was actually, you know, uh, extending my career into a new area.
1: Well, that, that, no, for sure. I mean, that must've been, that must've been something so special. Cause like you said, like the success came so early and and not that we shouldn't sell, we're not selling Brian Short. I just said at the top of this, Brian is the most winning Paralympian in Canadian winter sport history. so he's a total legend, but, um, to find success so early. And also Robin didn't mention this, but I mean, Brian as a young athlete, before he found out about his failing eyesight, I mean, he was on the junior national team. He'd been to multiple world juniors. He, he was, he was on the stream. He was following in your footsteps, no question. And, and continued to, I mean, he raced the world championships. He was, he qualified for the Olympics in 2010 as well, able-bodied, Although he didn't start. We can maybe have some questions about that later, but like, um, it's he, no, but he, you know, he, he definitely was at an incredibly high level. Not just, not just that. I mean, he raced in the top 30 at the, at, at the world championships in uh, Sapporo. So he was, he's definitely a high, high level. And what he, when did the transition happen? Like, so you guys came out of the gun, great success. It was a great story too. Like, Nat, you You don't get to follow along with this because it's all about, like, football and American Olympics is just such a huge deal. But in Canada, I mean, it is. Talk about a fantastic story. I mean, two oh, brothers. come on,
2: Devin. It's also big in football nowadays, too, right? Uh, just <laughs> Exactly. By the Mannings, like... Uh- the the well i'm just talking about because uh brian and i got the privilege of doing a toyota commercial that aired at the super bowl and that's you know, true so you have no excuse chaos. now I,
1: I almost cried on that commercial i want to ask you about that, that did you see commercial the super bowl commercial
0: matt no maybe, maybe i did i'm not sure i think oh, I, you I, gotta I definitely watch it. heard about it
1: you got to watch it on youtube i almost cried it was beautiful honestly it was really well done so yes from now on, there's no excuse. But prior to this year's Super Bowl, <laughs> there was a little bit of an excuse prior to the to the Toyota commercial. But but I I how 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 was that though? In, in, in the sense that like you get thrust into the limelight essentially. You guys had success right away in Salt Lake. Torino, obviously, great success. And then you start transitioning into like running the program too. Do you know what I mean? Casper, the 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 previous head coach of the Canadian para. Para program that had a lot of great success starts stepping away and you start you know metamorphosizing into that role and becoming the leader of that team as we come into the the olympic games in 2010 and i mean huge pressure for for the program of course and brian ben qualifies for the for the olympics in in 2010 as the able-bodied olympics as well let alone like the paralympics that come that come afterwards but um what was that like? Was that just kind of like an? Because this is a question I've never asked you. Was that just kind of like a natural thing? We went from like full time athlete, sparring partner with your brother, then being more involved in the training. I know we've always we've had a lot of philosophical discussions over training. You've always been very interested in like the science of sport and training programs and and maximizing, you know, maximizing your physiological capabilities and psych- psychological the full package. But but when did you transition into into, into taking on like the administrative role and was that like a huge was that a huge change or did it kind of happen fairly naturally
2: well the administration role will never happen fairly naturally for <laughs> me because I'm an on the ground type person I really work in the in, in the field of play is where my life has been right Devin so yeah um, the administration was more of a case of need um, I started coaching in 2003 at Foothills Nordic head coach for four years at 2007. I was told that I wasn't fast enough to keep up with Brian. So how are we going to maintain funding in order to do that after he was, uh, yeah, top, I think he was 20th at the world championship in Sapporo that year. And I basically said, well, you know, I, I can't quit work. And so they, I was developed a job. Uh, through on the podium at the paranortic team and so became the technical coach for the paranormal team 2007. So I could train alongside Brian, train alongside the team, but also coach him. And so yeah, it worked out well to get to 2010. I trained far harder between 07 and 2010 or back as hard as I ever did as a national team athlete before, you know, between 98 and 2002. So that was a huge thing to realize that, what level Brian was at racing alongside yourself and then, uh, uh, to have to be at that level to keep up with them. So my whole focus was just 2010 Paralympics and basically peaking there so that I could at least not look like a fool, uh, in guiding my younger brother.
0: Wait, can you talk uh, a little bit? Can can you talk a little bit more about that? So it sounded like it wasn't necessarily you that made the call that okay, you were not fast enough to be the guide anymore. Did you did you maybe have a different opinion or how did that kind of play out?
2: Um, my opinion of it when was was told that was that well I can and I will and I believed in it, but I have to be training full time again. I can't just be, you know, doing part-time training. And I knew that, you know, my refocus was on three years, three-year focus for racing. And then the way of actually training it to the max was to jump in any NORAM race that was in uh, Canada and some in the U.S. and racing the fastest guys in North America uh, along with Brian and basically take him to those races. And those were our bonding moments as, as brothers, for sure, because we weren't. Super close Uh, at six years age difference. I was out of the house when he was still at elementary school. So, yeah, it was a fun time. It was a great time. We look back on fondly. But in 2010, we thought we were such hot stuff, you know, that we won three gold medals, at the Paralympics in Vancouver and uh, funding is easy and it's just going to keep flowing. And that's where the big transition came to having to take over the administration as well, because I was tied so closely with Brian and we were tied to the only funding source really for the Paralympic stream at that time was own the podium. And we suffered a massive cut that year because we weren't well organized or aligned and, and we needed to reorganize how we were doing it under Nordic Canada or at that time cross-country Canada. So it came as... A surprise to me to take over that program but at the same time it was a challenge that i had to take on or you know there's a lot of athletes that were left in the dust in that stream so we refocused the program for one year towards the world championships to do the best job we could which happened to be in uh, siberia and russia so that was pretty interesting to channel all of our opposite other funding for the rest of the team let's call it and then uh Towards the World Championships and do what we could there to try to regain some of our uh, excellence funding from being, uh, you know, at the top of the world. And and at that World Championships, we end up having uh, three world champions beside Brian plus uh, two sit skiers that both won World Championships there, and that re-established our excellence funding that we could start to build upon the program at that time.
1: And as as you mentioned that because this this is you know we're gonna have to have Brian on on the pod too, Nat, cause like it, it's a, he's a great storyteller and, and has a lot to share, but I don't want to let us just like breeze over how hard 2010 was, because like you said, the juggernaut that was the Canadian, that is the Canadian paranordic program from, as you mentioned, Robin, when you took over the administration full time, full gas from after Vancouver to stepping now into the able-bodied role in Canada it was a well-funded, well-organized machine traveling with over a dozen athletes to New Zealand in the summer, altitude camps, uh, World Cups overseas, uh, World Championships, Paralympics and, and delivering on all the metrics every season, season after season. Vancouver, it's, it's crazy that it's 12, 12 years ago now, like that's bonkers, but that's always what old people say, that uh, time goes so fast, but, but it really does. And, and um, the hype, of course, Brian being such a superstar on the Paranordic side of things with the success in Salt Lake and then Torino and then now a home Paralympics. But at the same time, having these streams connect, like you said, Robin, where his, his just his fitness. I mean, Brian at maybe his most fit of his whole career was kind of like crescendoing after from like 2007 to around 2010, he was also very fit throughout the throughout the, from 2010 to 2020 as well. But um, but but the, to make a long story short, Brian qualifies for the Winter Olympics in in 2010, and it just so happens that sport is a cruel mistress and comes into the team with one of the strongest, if not the strongest, men's team we've ever had. Uh, at a championship and you know politics being what they are and if you want to get really deep into it you can just google this and there's a lot of newspaper articles written about it and it was kind of a big thing in the Canadian sports media at the time but but like I said we had horses running hot and running fast and getting top tens at, at championships not just any championships but top tens at the Olympic Games in in vancouver the home olympic games and it came right down to it and at the end of the at the end of it all brian was the was the alternate through through all the distance races and ended up leaving without able to having able to start a single olympic race and that was that must have been i mean not not, it must have been i was living with him i know it was heartbreaking it's heartbreaking of course it's heartbreaking and that's why i say sports a cruel mistress because you know it's that's the nature of it. There's only four starts. And if you have five guys that are in great shape, one person's going to be disappointed. And then one person that starts is going to shit the bed. And then, you know, that's always how it is in any team. It doesn't, it could be Norway too. I mean, even the guy that's this fourth guy, in Norway, he's seventh in the world championships. He's pissed about it. You can guarantee that. And uh, you know, articles are written that he shit the bed. <laughs> so, so, um, it, but, but how, I mean, that was, I know it was gut wrenching and I know it was like, that that shatters someone but the fact that he was able to refocus so quickly or not just he but you and the team was able to refocus so quickly deliver at the Paranordic Paralympics in Vancouver some weeks later and then turn it around and then be so instrumental in turning the whole program around with the world championships in Hanuman Sisk we don't need to spend a whole whole lot of time with that but but how were you able? To, I mean, as a brother, as as a coach, as a training partner, as a sparring partner, using all your experience, would you say that that was one of the most challenging times to be? I call it Jedi mind training tricks. partner, coaching role with Brian, or, or like how was that? Yeah, hey man, whatever works. But I'm I'm just curious to hear your perspective on that because I know how hard that was and. And it'll always be hard, but I mean, at the end of the day, sports, sport, and who really cares? But but uh, I, at the time, I know I know it's tough. It'd be interesting to hear your perspective because I think there's there's some lessons in that because all athletes have to deal with with disappointment, and it could have been so easy to like pack it up, bomb the Paralympics, be bitter, not chase your dreams anymore, essentially, and just kind of like sit with that because it does suck, man. It sucks. What can you say? It does It sucks when you made a goal that was so pinnacle, and then you don't get to start a race. That's that sucks.
2: Well, we don't want to dwell on it too far here, Devin, but no, no, uh, the but, reality no, of it. Is... No, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean?
1: Um, at the time, at the it's... time, I don't mean in the future, but at the time it sucked.
2: At the time, like I say, I, I always joke about it, It's just Jedi mind tricks. We need to refocus where we're going and we can do things and we refocus. We need, we knew what our job was. As far as the Paralympics were concerned, we had to get through a tough time there in those couple of weeks between the Olympics and Paralympics. And for sure that every day your emotions can change in that uh, scenario. But yeah, working with him at that time and working through it though, but getting to the Paralympics and getting through 2010 was the culmination of my career and also the culmination guiding with him. So for me, it was absolutely awesome. I know that there's still some, there's always going to be some emotional pain from that for, for him. And, And these are just pieces that, that happen in life and we have to deal with, um, you know, call it loss, whatever it is, these are always pieces that humans will deal with. So um, it's a, a process and, and sport is a cruel thing, like you said. And um, yeah, communication becomes what is the biggest key uh, element out of all of that and how media is a very, beast that needs to be tamed and you have to be extremely cautious around how you utilize the media because uh you say the wrong thing and it can turn against you very quickly and so i think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from uh 2010 from a sport organization and other things and i just hope and this is a problem in canadian sport right now i think there's a lot of the organizations that have not big enough rugs to keep sweeping stuff under and there's some really bad things beyond what this is that are coming out now in a lot of different sports so that's where we are in the current realm of canadian sport that we need to make sure that the positive communication keeps coming forward so that we are moving in the right direction and that also is where i will focus leadership on you know moving forward with the uh the olympic stream of athletes
1: that's actually interesting i'm going to jump in and ask you a question regarding that because because we saw this, you know, this is something that keeps repeating, and I'm going to keep to like the sporting side of things. But we saw it, We talked about this earlier this year as well, like the breakdown at the best team on earth with the Norwegian team, and you have like Emma Leverson running his mouth at the Olympics, and Paul Goldberg going into the the media, going like, "What the hell are you talking about? Can we focus on the guys that are racing? This is ridiculous," and then being put in the relay, and just like racing like a pile of hot garbage and you know not that they had a chance against russia anyways but uh, regard on the day but regardless you you see how communication can break down on like the 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 best teams in the world and then how important it is actually you know when things are going well it's pretty easy to communicate effectively and use the media to your advantage and and have a hunky-dory great old time um, but when you have some challenges, you can see that it can go south pretty quickly, like you alluded to Robin. And of course, I'm sure you're just alluding to some of the, the articles and just like just the, the environment that surrounded the whole decision-making with, with, uh, Brian at the Olympics in 2010 and, 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 the fallout from that and how it all went down. But the reason why I wanted to jump ahead is like, not to put you on the spot, Robin, but you, you know, like you're walking into a situation, not right, right away, but he's damn good though, dude. And he's really good. Your son is is going to be you know he, he's one of the the futures uh, the bright faces of Canadian cross country skiing he is I mean not just him himself he doesn't have to carry that that himself there's a lot of young talented male cross country skiers in Canada right now but uh, you know how, how have you thought much about that I mean because like at, at a you know there's relay starts that are going to be happening there's World Cup starts that's going to be happening and essentially you're just gonna have to i guess like just recuse yourself from those decisions but that 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 communication piece is going to be super important for the community and and the media especially as the guys get better and get more more racing is is that something you're sitting with or is that something you've thought a bit about because if not i think it's probably something you should (laughs) i don't know i just like to hear your perspective on that
2: well those pieces will get hard And as soon as that conflict of interest piece comes into play at a serious enough level, then uh, as far as I'm concerned, there will have to be another coach that is going to be stepping into this role. Um, I will be the first one to admit I say this all the time in the past 10 years to the para-athletes as well that I coached. It's like, look, if you really feel and believe that there's a better coach to be in this position and in this role, then I want that person for you. I do. That, that is the goal of the whole organization, in my opinion, is to be better than we were before. And if we are working as a whole and as a team, we're striving for succession plan that builds a better system for the future. And, and, and I really want to support athletes first and foremost. And if they come to a consensus that there is a better pathway that is going to best guide them, then bring it on. I want to be the person who is helping bring that next coach in that succeeds after me and does a better job. And that would be ideal because, you know, I think there's a a lot of uh, coaches out there that can, do a far better job than I can. And it's just about how are they going to work within the system and and build up to the level that I've built over the last 10 years. And that would, that would be the ultimate goal. So when there is uh, those types of things, Devin, I just really hope that we are in a situation where, you know, with Chris Jeffries's HPD, he can look after these pieces for sure. He's going to, at some point within all of this criteria writing that we're going to need to do this. Uh, summer is, is is be in charge of all that with the high performance committee. And I'm going to be just the coach on the ground in the field. Uh, There will have to be some decision-making obviously around what races athletes choose to do or not, but there'll be a lot of communication necessary within the team there and make sure that the athletes are part of the selection process for these things. And as long as everybody's open and upfront and we have direct communication within the athletes that are on the ground, I really believe that those things can be mitigated. But like you say, it's it's not an easy piece, for one, for starting. Uh, Eric Denise is the next-gen coach, where Xavier currently is. So Eric is his coach. Uh, as far as who's looking after that piece. But in reality, the national team coaches right now, it's a lot like uh, the U.S. system now. I don't actually coach athletes. I'm coaching a system the athletes are all part of the training center models and the coaches in those training centers are actually their direct daily training environment coaches. So they have more say over what's going on with those athletes than I really do. I just have a say in how the program is going, the direction it's going. And I hope that is best I work with those coaches is to align them in following that system.
0: Do you, uh, do you, do you coach uh, Xavier at all, or do you, it's uh, uh... Real kind of hands off kind of situation.
2: Well, obviously, as his dad, the the interesting thing we'll go back to that is, as as a young kid, I I try I put Xavier in every sport possible besides cross country skiing in the winter. Partly because of selfish reasons after being away for uh, weeks or a month at cross-country skiing environment, I didn't want to come home and go straight back to a cross-country ski environment. I loved going to the Alpine Hill with him and, and skiing with him when he's doing that. I actually loved watching him speed skate in the winter and he did a lot of that. And so him choosing to cross-country ski race was actually... Uh, all in part his decision. I mean, he grew up around it. Like Devin said, he was on the World Cup as a one year and a half-year-old with a nanny following Milan and, and the circuit at times uh, before Torino. So it was kind of crazy upbringing, uh, which was just normal life for what Devin lived, what I lived, and Zab just was just brought up in it. But it's abnormal compared to what is average, right? I think... So, I mean- uh, yeah, no, just as far as coaching goes, obviously, I'm a, a dad and I know the sport a lot. So there's a lot of uh, guidance, let's call it. But I try to leave the coaching up to, in the past, it was the Foothills Nordic with uh, Eric Grunewald. And last year it was with, uh, you know, with the, the, the academy. So uh, Tormod this year, Latin and, and Julia Istgard last year.
1: Yeah. And I think, I think it is exciting. And I mean, like full disclosure for people that are listening in the U S that Robin uh, mentioned that like how the system is in Canada, like it, of course it's, it's a, it's a program under transition as, as most programs are, but especially in Canada right now. And the, I'm I actually sit on the high performance committee. So I have to have like full disclosure there. (laughs) So um, and I think, I, I mean, of course I wouldn't be on it if I didn't think that we could move things in a better direction. Uh, for sure, and and with with Chris Jeffries is the high performance director, like the big boss of the national team program. Now, um, you know, it, it, the onus is going to be on him to take a lot of those, like you said, Robin, those decisions, and then have guidance from from us to to have uh, tighter criteria and communicate it more effectively. And I mean, that's that's always the that's always that's always the goal. I mean, I, I think it is really exciting though to have you Robin in, into the role as the able-bodied as we transitioned into that because, you know, like we've had, we've struggled that, like, I mean, we've talked about it maybe off the record a little bit, but Canada, you know, like we've struggled quite a bit with, first of all, Robin mentioned something I think is incredibly important, but like succession succession planning. And this is something that I think North American programs, the U S as well <laughs> has to really never lose sight of. Because you, you get these coaches like Cork or Whitcomb or Grover or something that have been there forever. And then something just happens. You take them for granted and you never train up the next generation of coaches. Like who's the next Whitcomb? who's the next young Whitcomb out there that's, that's traveling with the, with the U S ski team or running a development program and that sort of thing. I shouldn't leave fish out of this too. Cause Brian fish has been hugely instrumental in the development program in the U S but he's also been there for a while now too. And, and, it, and, and we just get comfortable with that. And, and in Canada, we, that's just kind of like how we, how we had been running things in the past is you, you get this coach. who's great. Charismatic kills himself for the role. does a great job. But it's, it just, when you're one and alone and you're out there solo, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough thing to hold on by yourself with no help. And so after some years you, you, you get a little tired or it's a stress on your family or whatever, you get another job offer. That's just better or you, you know, and you move on. And then without that succession happening it, it just essentially you. It's like a it's like a funhouse. You're just like walking up the stairs, having a good time with your buddies, and then the, the the floor falls out, and you're like dropped down like three floors, and you're like, what the hell happened? And then everyone starts yelling at each other, going like, why did you step there? You knew it was a trapdoor, but no one knew it was a trapdoor. And then you got to walk up again. Everyone's pumped, and then the same thing keeps happening. And so it's interesting to hear your perspective on that, Robin, because I think you do have a great understanding of that, and and that'll be a big piece moving forward. Um, as well. I think in, I think that's the key, the the key piece. And, and, and I'm really curious actually um, because this is a tug, a push and pull all the time. And this is also a big point of discussion right now in Sweden and, and in Norway is this decentralization that's kind of happening in international skiing, even at the top level. And, And this isn't something, the decentralization that's happening also in Norway is, is not, the philosophy that got Norway to where it was where now you have a lot of these athletes with their own personal coaches and not just personal coaches. Like you mentioned, like giving guidance or when you're a little down, you call your old club coach and you have a good old chat or you go out for a workout a couple of times a month just to like get a pep talk from your club coach that you really support. Like we're talking like serious programming and, and you know, it, it's, it's going to be interesting. Like, is this the way forward? And, and in Canada, this, this has always been a struggle in Canada because you have these training centers that, that want autonomy, but don't have the funding to do the autonomy. And we're not going to fall in. I'm not going to bait you. We're not going to get all into the, in, into like a philosophical debate on this. This is just my own personal take. And then these programs are essentially trying to compete with the national team. And, and it's, <laughs> I think the results speak for themselves Per Frankly, I mean, it, it, it's it's a it's a it's a tough act to try and compete with um, a training center, or a top club trying to compete with the national team is tough. But you're having the same thing. You see, it's happening in Sweden: Frida Carlson uh, Maya Dahlquist, Lynn's Fawn, like the big, big names of women's Swedish skiing, which is the top program in the world for women. They're stepping away from the national team because they didn't like what at the national team and are going to go it alone. And it, it's the, these kind of things. It's going to be interesting to follow along. And I, 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 I don't envy you, Rob. And I, I think it's a, I think it's a challenging, it's a challenging role. And, and it's just interesting to see that something that's been going on in Canada for a long time is now happening internationally. Like this is, this is spilled over into Sweden. You'd never think that would happen and you'd never think this would happen in Norway. Never in a million years would you see it. And it's just going to be It's going to be an interesting case study to see how this goes in the next five years.
2: I guess the good news is if all those countries are doing it, then we're on the right track because we're ahead <laughs> How about that? Um, it's about supporting – you know, I'm really all about looking at athletes' autonomy in that if the athletes look at it as they're building their own professional business, each one individually – that they have to be responsible for a lot of their own stuff rather than going, what are you going to do for me? What are you going to do for me? This program sucks. How come you're not doing this for me? It's like, okay, you build your own professional autonomy and you're good enough to be part of the national ski team because you through selection criteria qualification. You're just the best. We're going to take you on. We're going to support you from this level and you can choose what best suits you. And so if we give the athletes this autonomy that they're building their own businesses, they start to have more self-belief in, in the programs that they're building with their coaches. And then we're trying to just support it from that way. So more of a top-down approach, Devin, where we're really supporting the athletes, but then leaning on the athletes to be professional about their business. And from what I have seen through the years at, uh, In Canada, a lot of the best athletes, like if we take Becky Scott, for example, Alex Harvey, yourself, when things were, you know, kind of turmoiling within the national team, you went and found your best pathway. And when you found your best pathway as those top athletes is the direction that you needed to take, your results followed. You believed in the pathway. You believed in yourself more. You had the support. You set up the support network that's best going to suit you. Yes, there's always the pieces that are on the road, the wax techs, the uh, IST, like the support team around you, the the physios, the massage, whatever that the national team has to control as the family that works on the road together. But the day to day stuff at home, uh, we have such diverse cultures across Canada, as you know, French, English, and different worlds Uh, half the time heck we're not even part of the same constitution in this country you know so it's a pretty mix of people that are involved and we have to just try to get them all supporting the same sort of mentality or goal and have a top-down approach of supporting below rather than below looking up and and i just did a talk uh on saturday actually with the board of crossing to canada and the whole purpose of that talk is to stop pointing fingers at each other it's about looking in the mirror and it's about asking ourselves what is it that we can do to support each other rather than looking to the national team as what are you doing for us and you're not doing this and and blaming them for everything because if we're just going to blame each other we're never going to get forward and we have to see what it is that we each individually can do to support it in, in, in the system moving in the right direction. And that starts with just allowing the autonomy of the athletes to make their own decisions.
1: Yeah, no, that's true. And you know what, the other thing with that too, and cause this is like one of my, like, I love ranting about this. And that's like, God, don't do it, but I'm doing it. I'm doing It's culture. It's like, it's about building culture. And that is what, we're, we're lacking a bit. And I, I hate to bring up our big brother. Like, I know we're just the hat of the U S and stuff, but like, look at your gun laws, Nat, they suck. So suck on that. But here's the deal. You, what you do have a really good thing going is, um, it is. I was, I was around when the culture in U S cross country skiing was the worst ever clubs, coaches, programs, everyone hated the national team. The national team was, was, doing like delivering a, a pretty shit product really like at least with the administrative stuff, everyone was pointing fingers, trying to do it themselves. Like it, it was a nightmare. And, and it took a long time. And we've talked about this before, like v- Vordenberg, I give Vordenberg a ton of credit. I give also John Niestad a ton of credit when he came in and um, also like Justin Wadsworth and, and Wickcomb and uh, Grover, of course. Oh my God. And all the guys, Cork, everybody, but it was a big project and it's not like that culture changed like now we're we all think that the us cross country ski community is like one big like usa usa cheering squad and seeing kumbaya and like the medals just rain in and everyone loves it and everyone's buying like USA stuff and like supporting like nnf and like all this like it, it, but this was not there before and it now is and i am so impressed and with the dedication of the few, and I'm, I can't name them all because it's, it's more than just the coaches I named the, the people behind it, but there was a cultural shift in us cross country skiing and people believe in the program. They believe in the athletes. We cheer for athletes, new ones that are coming up, that are out of college that are out of this, like we're all behind them. We're cheering. We're stoked. And and in Canada, man, I hope we can get there. And I, I that's why I'm actually really excited to hear you say that Robin and I'm, I'm excited to be a part of that. And I want, I want to see that happen because I, I don't see any reason why we can't also um, change the culture in Canadian cross country skiing Cause like, that's uh, you know, it, we need that. If, if Canada wants to have success again internationally, cause we have such a deep talent pool. Now if we want to change. If we, we want to actually get results instead of just like resting on like some world junior results or like, wow, we did good in a continental cup or wow. There was like one off good top 10 or top 15 world cup result here and there. Like that's, that's not, podium every weekend kind of stuff that that we want to see happen in canada and and uh it'll be fun to follow along speaking of culture and changing nat this is what we really wanted to talk about so we're going to do that i think we transition to that can you talk to us a little bit about um what what happened was there's some big news lately with uh mostly distances speaking of the u.s too because they were they were pretty instrumental in this kind of stuff and and uh, i wanted to kind of pick robin's brain about that can you introduce that a little bit nat
0: yeah. I mean, I'd like to think that this uh, issue became a, a live issue when uh, Faster Skier wrote about it during the Olympics. But I think uh, in, in actuality, there are a lot of like people who are actually involved in, in the sport who had been doing some really hard and thankless work uh, on this equal distance question for uh, for years, I think. And so, you know, as, as people have... Um, as people have heard on, on this podcast, heard us talk about, heard us kind of complain about, um, you know, kind of the, the old school uh, uh, anti-progressive management of the sport by the International Ski Federation. Um, You know, we had women racing distances at the Olympics, like men race 30 K in the, in the pursuit and women race 15 K. And we know that, you know, this is kind of a legacy of, outdated ideas about gender and men's and women's bodies. And I'm going to stop going into that before I get myself into trouble here. But um, kind of a surprise move, because, when you know, when I wrote about this at the Olympics, um, it really seemed like there was sort of a lot of resistance uh, at the fist level where, you know, people were sort of saying, well, you know, we 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 love the idea of equality but you know, we don't want to do it because that's not the way it's always been. And you know, you really kind of got that sense from the Scandinavian coaches that they were kind of uh, you know, just just too much of a culture shift um even though, you know, I think there was real interest from uh American team from particularly from the Swedish women but then Kind of a little bit like out of the blue bolt of lightning um, to mix metaphors. We we heard from the FISC Congress this year that the um, I think it was the, the cross-country committee and then sort of stamped by the FISC Congress made the choice to equalize uh, all the distances and all the races this year, which was just sort of like, whoa. Um, which, you know, I think on balance, uh, fantastic and overdue and uh, like outdated Thing for them to do. Could have, should have happened maybe 15, 20 years ago. Um, I think it does like raise some interesting questions just from my perspective, like sort of, I mean, obviously they've got a schedule set for next year. We kind of know what these distances will be, but um, I I am going to throw sort of one idea out there, which was, I was uh, at a wedding this weekend with a couple of high level uh, skiers and, and former current and former coaches and was with uh, Christina Gillis who's a former uh, Northern Michigan University uh, elite racer from Fairbanks and she was uh, she wasn't saying that equal distances is a bad idea but she was saying I'm really bummed to lose out on the 5k because the 5k you know it's like kind of its own sort of iconic event with you know kind of unique unique stars, like really good race for Jesse Diggins, you know, could have been a really fun race to watch with uh, men racing a 5k distance every now and then it doesn't seem like that'll be on the schedule. So it seems like there are a lot of questions uh, about it, but, um, you know, big development and definitely, you know, I know, I know Devin can get on a much bigger soapbox than the one I just climbed up on. And, and Rob, I'm curious to kind of hear if you had any kind of inside Scoop on how that like transpired if you were in on any of those conversations as someone who's presumably involved in in some of this uh, international sports discussion. But yeah, that's kind of where we're at. Well,
2: I've been hired since uh, April 1st, effectively. So, no, not really, but I do have some insight to it uh, from being on some of the FIST meetings uh, just since I got hired on April 1st. So, what from my knowledge. And correct me if I'm wrong, if you know more than me, but uh, I think over 50% of athletes surveyed a year and two years ago that they were interested in having common distance racing. And then this year, the fists were against their kind of wishy-washy, but then this year, 57% of nations were surveyed and said that they wanted common distance races, then FIS announced it. And now I think it was the last survey after they announced it, I think it was like 70% of athletes were against it. So we're never going to please everybody. And with change is always difficult and there's always shifts. And I would say that if FIS was actually really, really progressive, they'd have done like swimming did today and have a transgender class as well. So then we don't have to argue or go down the road of how dangerous that is, Uh, Nat, and then. (laughs) we would actually I killed three birds with one stone. How about that? Um, as far as it all, from my perspective, because I'm so new in this role and whatnot, yes, there's going to be some frustration about losing a 5K. I know that uh, Devin, I'll let him get on his soapbox around 15s and 30s for the men soon. But until we go through a couple of years of this and see where it's at, this will be a great year to see how it all works. Um, because the World Championships are actually still at the, uh, what we call the traditional distances uh, for Planica this winter. So we will have a good vision of how the World Cup works, how the World Championship works and beyond. And then how about we do this again in a year's time and we'll make a judgment call of this. That will be fun to hear your guys' podcast in a year's time to see how glorious it is or how horrendous it truly is.
1: Yeah, no, I am, I am fascinated with with this like you said robin i think that the latest athlete survey is shocking like like it is just so overwhelmingly against the equal distances that that shocked me because that is never something when i was an active athlete um i heard i mean that people were like it was more like the grumbling like how come the women and men don't do the same distances like this is weird And track they do like i don't get this and then it seemed like that was the momentum. And, and then that, that, that survey at this spring was like, Holy Lord, but here's the thing. And I am going to rant a little bit, cause that's kind of what I do. And, um, as you said, Robin, I am so choked with what the men lost actually. First of all, I, th- I, th- I think it's great that the women get to do some of the distances, the same, or the same distance. Well, we'll get, I'll get back to that. I, I rant. So it's going to be a bit here, but, before I get into the positives, the negatives are the men losing the 15K and the 30K. It, we are so horrendously bad in cross-country skiing with protecting a, 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 like a legacy and a story. Like, Nat, you're a journalist. Like, it, it is it is just like hair pulling for a journalist to create a narrative. And when you're up against these sports like soccer, like, you know, like, road cycling like international marathoning diamond league like track and field events Bislit, the Bislett stadium in oslo just turned 100 this year i mean this is like these are the storylines that you can tell right and and now the 15k was in the first winter olympics in 19 1924 and so was the 30k they're gone forever and now it's like a 10k and a 20K and a 50K, and that's the deal. And we all know the 50K is one week a year on the World Cup, and that, that's the big daddy. Like, that's Holman Cole, and that's the crown jewel of the, of the whole World Cup. So, so to me, it's like, okay, we want to have equal distances, but we are just kneecapping 100 years of, of history. Like, like, you know, you'd like think back, back, like close your eyes and think of the most beautiful 15K classic. I know I love 15K classic, but like, it's gone, baby.
0: You know what? gone. I- I want to get in here because, uh, you know, as a journalist who writes like dumb, cliched phrases like the iconic 15K at whatever, I don't actually think I've written that, man. I'm like, you know what, like the 50K, yes. Like, okay maybe if we're talking about like, is there a quintessential 15K course? But like, you know what we're doing, like five 3k loops anyways so like really like can you give me an example of like a 15k that you are actually heartbroken about going down to a 10k or up to a 20k well the only like
1: lati i think like the lati 15k classic course is a pretty classic one otapad and oprah gave are gonna go back there after what happened with the doping there uh lately but (laughs) the otapad 15k classic course is is pretty iconic and it's mostly like just like the championships do you know, And like, like Robin said, the championship 15K is still there this year. But uh, the, the championship 15Ks are, are iconic. Aren't said, they like 5K loops? Yeah, they're 5K loops. But I'm saying just the race itself. The race itself. But I agree with what you're saying. I just think it's weird that we're all going to like, the men are now going to have to, they lost 10K of their mass start. That's quite a bit and but i agree that between the 10 and 15k to be perfectly honest whatever but the but okay we're all they're all the same the 50k for women some people are like this is silly and like my wife included she's like why why are we doing a 50k for women like what's the point point? and i'm like the reason why is because like i think it's ridiculous that the women don't do a 50 it's the it's the marathon it's the crown jewel of the olympic games is it ends the whole The whole deal. The men and women should do the 50K. The men and women do the marathon in the Summer Olympics. And it's a really crowning achievement of endurance sport. We got to do it. It's awesome. And I hope, I hope as well that whoever's in charge of the World Cup in Oslo, if the women are going to do the Oslo 50K, you put both 50Ks on the same fucking day because it's pandemonium in the woods for the men's race. Everyone's camping out. It's like a crazy party, like just crazy in the woods with like, I don't know, 60, 70,000 fans. And then everyone goes home and the women's race to 30K. Oh, that's sweet. So the women have like this skeleton crew of like 10,000 fans while the men have like, just like the whole forest is shaking. So put them both on the same day so that everyone can experience the magic of home and calling. That's that's what I think they should do. But I think it's good that the women are doing the same. I think by and large, having the same distances, super, it's super good. It's super positive. Let's get with the times, deal with it. We need to have, some stability I am sad that the 30k and 15k are gone for the men but in general it's nice to have like the same distances we are a bit all over the place in cross-country skiing we change our mind a lot of the time I think something that would be way more important is like standardize the sprints because like let's talk about the sprint cutoff for women how many sprint courses have we seen in the world cup where like the course was designed for the men it's all about the men and then they just like oh shit Let's just cut off like 300 meters or 400 meters and the women's sprint course like sucks. And it's like some weird like 180 that cuts it off and like it, it changes the flow. Like, can't we just make the sprint being 1500 meters? Like, make a course that's 1500 meters long. Do it. It's not that hard. If you can't do it, maybe you shouldn't hold the sprint. It's that easy. And, but the real discussion I want to have is I don't think, I think this is all lip service. Per, to be perfectly honest, if we're talking about equality, I think like equal distances. Yeah, it's nice. It's something that should have been done. Like you said, Matt and and Robin, like 20 years ago, this is, this is the progress. This is ridiculous. It's, it's a moot point. It's, it's a great thing. What isn't a great thing and we need to do is, is true equality in women's sport in cross-country skiing. I'm going to stick with cross-country skiing. And, And I think it starts at the club level. I think it starts when, when the kids are like 12, 13 years old, I think how many clubs out there in North America are having the women in teenage like teenage women in the junior programs in like some club being like, okay, the women are going to do four times five minutes and the men are going to do six times five minutes, like 16 year olds. You know what I mean? Okay. The men are going to do three hours roller ski and the women's van leaves at two hours. What is this shit? Like, like that, that shows zero understanding of physiology And also it does not build resiliency. It does not build robustness and it is not happening over here. You know, Kristen Stormer's diary didn't pack in, pack it in and just do four times five minutes. She did seven times five minutes and Teresa did like 10 times five minutes. I'm just kidding. I'm making an example, but like, I'm just joking around. Don't, don't do seven times five minutes or 10 times five minutes kids. But I just mean like club coaches need to understand that equality isn't about equalizing the distance. It's about, We need to make this go deeper at the start. That, of course, women are tougher. Watch women's racing. Jesse Diggins is way tougher than I've ever been in my whole life. Frida Carlson goes to the basement. Teresa Yohug. no one is tougher mentally than skiing history, maybe. Like it's crazy. Bjorn Dolly was pretty tough too. But the fact of the matter is, this is the resiliency we need to build. I'm also really pumped about this idea about giving bibs. If you have female staff, you get more bibs on the world cup with technicians and stuff. I was going to, I was curious to hear your thoughts on that, Robin, because I think that's, this is a good initiative this, cause there's no techs, man. There's no and There's no female techs
0: or female coaches. There's very few. It's, it's, it's bonkers. Can, can you just, uh, either of you guys, just for the listeners who might not be familiar with that, can you just give a quick one sentence rundown of, of what that measure entails?
2: As far as bibs go?
0: Yeah. Yes. So typically there's been
2: four staff bibs. I think it's changed over the years, depending on your makeup of teams and whatnot. But this year, for sure, it's going to be four staff bibs for team As a starting point. Uh, And then from there, you can go two more guaranteed staff bibs that are female gender specific to be on the course that can only be used by female staff. And then uh, there's also a sharing of bibs between nations if you, but you have to have a written agreement ahead of time. So a a team's maximum uh, bib allocation would be eight total, but that's two female, two shared, and then your four common. And, and we're talking
0: about what with the bibs that are needed to, if you're a coaching or wax tech to be able to actually access the course, test skis, that kind of thing, which is like critically important for teams trying to make sure they get their skis dialed in, et cetera, et cetera.
1: This is it so is. critically important. This is so critically important that the best way to do it, to, to visualize it is like, think of an F1 pit crew and one F1 team, like Red Bull has the full pit crew, like the full deal. And another team like, like, like Ferrari, they have three dudes there. You know what I mean? Like there's no chance, like Ferrari's screwed. Like they're never going to do anything in that F1 competition. So th- these bibs are so critical. They, the waxing side of things, um, dialing in your testing. There's so many moving parts. The fact that, that they've really limited the bibs. They've been trying to do this in the la- only in the last few years. Cause before it's like a free for all. And Nora would have like the whole armada man like Nora would have like 30 staff out there on course like because they have the bodies to do it and the budget to do it and so they're trying to equalize the playing field by limiting access to the course and and you know there's a lot of pushback from the big teams because of course it, it just helps to have more bids <laughs> the more skis you can test the better your chances are you're going to have better skis than the competition but I, so I think this is a really, really great step in the right direction. And I hope, I really hope it can inspire like female staff to want to wanna travel with, with the national team. But again, and this is the, this is the other thing, equality, if we're going to talk about equality, it's like, it's also about how staff operate and how they behave themselves and how they travel and like professionalism and all this sort of stuff. Because, like, yeah, first of all, it's a tough job. You don't get paid that well. You're traveling all the time. You're, you're like, gone from home all the time. Like, it's, there's already some, you have to be real, you have to be, like, a super fan to want to do this job. But then, also, if you have this legacy environment, like, like a, like a locker room environment, which is super fun, and it's just been like that forever, um, maybe that's also something that the whole community, like, not, not Canada, not Norway, not Sweden, not Russia, the whole community at large has to look at, them, look at this and be like, huh, as we get more professional and as these bibs become scarcer and the, the, this time on course becomes scarcer and this is a way to, to gain an advantage is to have very talented women out there testing skis. Then maybe we also need to create an environment that is, that is um, conducive for women to want to make this a career. Cause it hasn't been that in the past. So I think there's a lot of questions that need to be asked. I think it's great that we're making like these big splashy kind of proclamations, like equal distance bibs for women's staff, like awesome. Great. It, it is good, but like, don't just put the lipstick on the pig and then like, let the pig run around and shit, like actually change things and make it better. You know what I mean? That's my take. Great metaphor. So I'll
2: add to that was good. I'll add to that. I, I, I think this is a, a very much a, a US initiative. So I, you know, kudos to the American team for being as well organized as they are and how well that they have organized their entire team around it. It's also what they are pushing forward at FIS, And I think this is a really cool thing. Um, it's progressive. It's what, you know, as Canadians, we should aspire to as well. Like I said, I'm just starting into this new role. So it's about getting things reorganized and going down this road. But it's clearly the way that we need to be focused and moving forward. I will also echo Devin's point of view, because from a physiological standpoint, you're right. Women are tougher. They have in endurance sport. They also have less body mass, muscularly structure, and they can recover quicker than men due to that. And they can actually, in many countries, train harder and more hours than the men do. Probably sometimes if we take uh, Bjorgen and probably Johag far more than the men in Norway. I know the Russian women's program is also uh, about probably 10 to 20% higher than the men, from what I know. And you're right, Devin, in Canada, we need to get that attitude and mentality um, around that, that inspires women to be at that level because they are
1: tougher than we are. Way tougher. It's not even funny. I mean, you're you're married to one, uh, so am I. I mean, like me, Len trained way harder than you ever did, and like Kristen, like stop it. Like I can't. Like I mean, there's no. It's like it's not even a thing. Like I, I'm a bum compared to Kristen. Like now, but like when we were training, it wasn't even close. It wasn't even a thing. But the thing is, is like this starts young, and it starts young by being inclusive. And and yes, men maybe men can this like raw, raw, competitive, like push your buddy and like kind of jaw at your buddy and, you know, inspire people like in that competitive environment. And maybe that's not, maybe that doesn't work for, for the women to, to, you know, train just as much or tougher, but like it's as easy as like a coach just goes like, this is the workout for the 14 year olds at our club. We're going to do this today. Like, I don't care if it's a, if you're like, literally a golden retriever that's out for the training and it's running like the golden retriever is also going to do like whatever eight times, three minutes. Like this is what we're doing today. And, and, and start building that in into the culture because it's, man, I, I really believe that set us back in, in Canada, especially uh, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of borrowing some ideas. I've had like a great conversation with Jess Cockney. So I'm going to give him a shout out for this. Cause we, you know, he really brought this to my attention big time. So, Jess, this one's for you, buddy. But it, it is. It's just it's just mind-boggling when you sit down and you start thinking about this like you're right. Like you are right. I've been to so many camps or like training thing like, you know, outreach stuff and it's like I hear that. I hear it again and again. The women run less. The women do less training. The women never do the same amount of intervals as the men. The women are going to do like 3 times 10 minutes if it's level 3 and the men are going to do 5 times 10 minutes. It's like if we actually understand what level three is and we have all of this lactate equipment and heart rate monitors, and we know what the demands of level three is, are you shitting me? 50 minutes of level three for a professional athlete is nothing like that is not hard. And, and, and yet, and yet that's what's happening at training camps. So it gets, so it's uh th- these are things that, that, that we need to, to change as well, as well as the distance. But it's great. It's great that it's going to be, I'm really excited. I mean, I think it's going to be fun to see, especially the, the 20k pursuit actually for both men and women. I think it's, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be awesome. I mean, let's be honest here. The women's world cup that's coming up this winter. Who's not stoked. I mean, this is awesome. It is wide open. There are so many names that can contend for the, for the overall, you know, if you, if you look, if you look at it, like Sundling is Sundling going to be the next Birgen, She could be. Diggins, like, is she going to be able to win the overall World Cup again? Man, it looks good. I mean, it's a she could make that happen. You have a lot of different nations contending. The storylines with the women too is the, is the Norwegian women's program with two new coaches. Are they going to get back to at least some sort of level, or is this ship sailed for a couple of years? Um, it's fun, man. I think it's going to be sweet. And then the rush, the whole Russian piece, we're just going to leave that, leave that on the side and just have to wait and see what happens there. But regardless, I'm really excited for women's racing in general think it's been awesome last year the last years and with the retirement of the greatest distance cross-country skier that ever lived in in terezio hug it it just opens the it opens the competition in a huge way and it's going to be fun and the fact that we're going to be able to have that with equal distances with the men it's it's a step in the right direction sorry sorry fist athletes that they voted against it but it is we just have to just have to deal with it
0: (laughs) any uh any more soapboxes left or uh it's kind of uh middle of the summer here. I know. I think I just kicked the soapboxes down, but I'm really
1: thrilled that Robin, that you joined us, man. I really appreciate you taking the time. It was, it was fun to chat and we're going to bother you again. Now that you're the head coach, of the Canadian national team, and we know each other so well. So sorry, buddy. Sorry for the, for the futures chats. We're going to have to have on our ghetto set up (laughs) here.
2: That's all right, Devin. I appreciate it. I've been hounding you for the last, uh, I think, around eight years uh, to try to take on the head coaching role. So you didn't. So I didn't really have a choice after that of giving you such a hard time about it. So appreciate it.
0: Thanks for sticking with us. We'll be back.